We are going to continue into the book of Judges, and we're going to be starting in Judges 13, but really, if you want to just flip and sit in Judges 16, that's where we're going to be. Um, Judges 13 introduces us to God doing big things again. So the first thing that we know in which God is going to do some big things is Judges 13, verse 1, starts off this great way again. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Last week we looked at um, Gideon and how the Midianites had gotten seven years of oppression on Israel because they were doing what was right in their own eyes. This year, I mean this time, Judges 13, they're doing what is right in their own eyes, and now we have 40 years of oppression. But then verse 5, 13.5, gives us some more hope. It says, For behold, he is speaking to a barren woman, we do not know her name, behold, uh, you are going to conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, No, for this child should be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So much like Abraham and Sarah or Isaac and Rebekah or Mary in the New Testament, God is opening a womb, and when he opens a womb, he is going to do major things through the life that he is delivering we see that God is ready to send to Israel a person to begin their salvation, to begin to be their Savior. It says that this man is going to have a Nazarite vow. What is that? In Israelites' worship, you could choose to take on this Nazarite vow. This would be, once you're old enough and you understand what is going on, you would make a decision for a certain period of time that I, like fasting, I'm not going to, and the rules of Nazarite vow is, I'm not going to drink any wine or strong drink, I'm not going to touch, touch a corpse of any kind, and I am not going to cut my hair. So we have a few guys in this room that probably at age 20 are kind of sitting in that right now, right? Hopefully they haven't touched dead bodies lately. Um, but other than that, like this was a decision to dedicate yourself to the Lord. I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to touch any dead corpses, and I'm not going to cut my hair. This was a decision often made, and yet for Samson, this boy that is going to be born, this is his whole life. He is going to be dedicated to the Lord completely, devoted to God in all things from birth all the way through. Things are looking up for Israel. They've been oppressed, but God is sending a Savior a special Savior. And honestly, if we've ever had a superhero in the Bible, Samson would be the closest thing to it. So we learn in chapter 14, verse 5, that he interacts with a lion, and he tears him apart, it says, like a young goat. I don't know how easy it is to be a young goat to tear apart, but for the Bible writer here, that was pretty easy. So also, Samson loses a bet one day. He makes a bet, he loses it because this woman kind of cheated him out of it, and instead of just going and buying 30 pairs of clothes or going and, you know, working to earn that, he kills 30 people so he can pay off his bet. Samson is a bad dude. The Philistines get mad at him because he's killed a bunch of people. And so what he does is he, tie, or he captures 300 foxes. That, again, not easy to do. Chapter 15, verse 5. And when he had set fire to the torches, he tied them, verse 4, sorry, he caught 300 foxes, took torches. He turned them tail to tail and put torches on each of their tails. Then he lets them loose in the fields and destroys all the crops 
of the Philistines. This makes them pretty mad. So they go to Israel and they say, you got two options. Either we will go to war with you or you deliver us Samson. They say, all right, we'll give you Samson. So verses, uh, chapter 15, verses 14 and 15 They are bringing Samson, and when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. The robes that were on his arms, he was bound, right, became as flax that had caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. He finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey. He put out his hand, and he took it, and then he struck a thousand men with it. This is a bad dude. All right, Samson is going about killing people, knocking them out, using whatever means necessary to just rule over everyone. No one could stop him. His strength was incomparable. Of course, he's been blessed. Of course, he's been gifted by God. Of course, he's been protected, and he's been used by God. But Samson has a vice. And you probably know the name of the vice. You probably have heard of this, but maybe many of us haven't really understood the story. So Samson's vice is women. And then we see this beginning in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 3, he sees a woman from afar. It's a Philistine woman. And he says, I want her. He goes to his parents, and the final words of that verse says, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. We've understood that it is not right for an Israelite to marry, much less mingle with someone of pagan descent, to be with a Philistine or a Midianite or anybody like that. And yet, what does Samson do? This man dedicated to God says, I want to marry someone I know that I should not be around. And we talked last week, living among turns, like, li- turns into living like. Samson doesn't care. Get her, for she is right in my own eyes. And in fact, we learn that he just is lusting after her, not loving her, because he says that in verse 3. In verse 7, he talks to her. Okay, that's not a good start, right? Like, I want to marry her. Why? Well, she's just really pretty. Okay, that is how Samson lives his life. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute. He goes and sleeps with her, spends the night with her. And while he is sleeping there, he is a wanted man with a bounty on his head. So the the people of Gaza create a plan. They hatch a plan to kill him in the morning. But what does Samson do? He knows they're going to do this, so he leaves at night, and he drags away these massive gates with him, just showing off his strength. Samson has tried to marry, or he does marry, um, a woman he shouldn't. He's going and uh, taking on the services of a prostitute. And then in chapter 16, verse 4, we're just going to read through most of this today. It says, After this he loved a woman in the valley of Sarek, whose name was Delilah. Once again, Samson's attraction to women is leading him away from his following of his God. Instead of going up to Mount Hebron where there would be Israelite women, he instead goes down to the valley, to the seedy places, to where the worship of other gods and idols was being taken place. And he goes and he says, I want her. So he chooses to spend time with Delilah. Verse 5. They must be spending a lot of time because the lords of the Philistine come to her. And what do they say? 
seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him and humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Five governors come to her. They are rulers of provinces. They know that if Samson is alive, then they have a threat to their kingdom. So they go to Delilah and they say, you have power over him. He will do whatever you say. He will listen to you. If you will figure out how to take away his strength, we will pay you a massive sum of money. We will give you, this is uh, three times more than Gideon got last week when he built a royal treasury. This is, uh, a slave would go for like 20 to 30 pieces of silver. This is almost 200 times that. This is like an insane amount. Even commentators go, they, they think that thousand was accidentally written in, that it's so big. So they say, if you will do this, we will take care of you forever. What does Delilah do? She doesn't hesitate. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Red flag. Yeah, baby, I don't know why you want to know this, but I'll just tell you, right? Like, no, and this makes no sense. You can see how deep into temptation and lust and desire for this woman he is because all logic has left his brain and all lust is ruling. How can you be bound? How can you be subdued? How can you lose all of your strength? Will you just tell me? Samson can't say no to her. Does that sound familiar? Verse 7. If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried. Now, this means something would have recently died and wrapped this around me. So he's asking her to do something that would break his Nazarite vow. But if you do this, then I shall become weak and be like other men. So the lords of the Philistine, it's like, all right, well, we can get that made. They bring the bowstrings that they have not dried. She bound him. And she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. He snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches a fire. So the, strength, so the secret of his strength was not known. Okay. Exactly what you thought was going to happen, happened, right? Like, hey, will you just tell me how you can be subdued? Okay, well, let's try this tonight. An ambush is set by her, and he breaks free. But Samson doesn't leave her. Samson still hangs around her. Samson still enjoys her company. Verse 10, Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Where is his complaint? You have tried to kill me. No. You're the victim here. It's interesting how temptation can cause other people to be victims. Please tell me how you might be bound. And so he says, verse 11, If they bind me with new ropes that you have not used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes, bound him, and said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber. He snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Verse 13, Delilah comes. She's a little upset now. Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head, now he's getting a little closer. He's letting her in a little further. He's dancing around the truth. 
seven locks on my head with a web and fasten it tight with a pin, I shall become weak and be like other men. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks off his head, of his head, wove them into a web. She made them tight with a pin and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep. He pulled the pin, the loom, and the web. Three times, he walks right up to the door. And he allows her to linger in his presence. He knows she's not good for him, but he can't say no. He knows that he should flee, but he can't walk away. She is too seductive. She is too tempting. She is too much what he desires in his own eyes. Maybe she will change. Maybe I will get stronger. Or maybe just lust is way stronger than our life sometimes. Verse 8, uh, verse, where are we? 15. How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times. You have not told me where your great strength lies. And she pressed him hard with her words day after day, urging him. And his soul was vexed to death. Okay, she's nagging him to death is pretty much what's happening here. That was from a commentary, not Jordan right there, so don't get mad at me. And he told her all his heart. He led her all the way in. He said, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb, and if my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like other men. He tells her the truth. Here's the source of my power. It's from God. And we don't get to see it in the English text, but when you see the Hebrew here, his word for God is not Yahweh. Not the God of Israel, the all-powerful, the Lord Almighty, the one who has delivered his people from Exodus out of Egypt and has brought them into this land. No, he uses a generic name for gods. Rather than Yahweh, he says, I have made a vow to Elohim. Not showing who really, because has he forgotten? Does he just view God as one of the many on the pantheon of gods? He tells her, verse 18 through 21, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she knew this time it was truthful. She sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, come up, he's told me his his whole heart. They even bring money. They came up and brought the money in their hands. They believe her this time too. She made him sleep on her knees. She called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep. And he said, I'm going to go out and, as at other times, shake myself free. But he did not know the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him to Gaza, where he was bound, and eventually he will die. The story of Samson is just a terrible story. There's no way around it. It's an awful story because here is a man with such great power and potential and purpose and all of this favor of God on him, and yet he wastes it all in selfish pursuits. He chooses what will not satisfy. He chooses momentary pleasure for, uh, instead of what God has set up for him to do. And Samson, I think, is such a real picture of temptation in our lives. 
how temptation robs us of logic, of happiness, and of holiness. And we're going to transition with the time I have left. Because if we miss and just go, wow, Samson's an idiot, and we miss how this story is prophetic into our story with us and our sexual partner, with us and pornography, with us and lusts and longings, then we are missing it, students. I'm going to be completely honest with you. Sexual immorality is the thing that scares me the most. It is the thing that I fear will rob me of my opportunity to do ministry. I am terrified because I know what is in my head. I know what I desire. I know what I think about or what I am tempted to. And I fear that if I gave it a heartbeat in my life, that within two to three weeks, my life could be completely destroyed. This isn't a a light matter. This isn't a fun matter. It terrifies me. Nothing else scares me from ruining my future than this one topic. But I don't think I'm the only one. I don't think I'm the only one in this room who has daily urges and yearnings who is fighting this battle every single day, who who is turning to things that will never satisfy. I don't think I am the only one. And I'm going to tell you, I've been married, it'll be 10 years in May. I thought or hoped getting a girlfriend would make it better. It doesn't. It just amps up the risk. I I thought, well, getting a, a wife will quench it. It doesn't. Because the desire for sin deep in me is much bigger. So don't put our hope in other places. Marriage is a great opportunity to live out the God-honoring pleasure that He has created us for. But it is not going to solve all of my unholy desires. I still look and linger or seek and search for what is not mine and what I should not have. I am happily married to a beautiful woman, and yet I am tempted to throw it all away for what? So, once again, I don't think I'm the only one, and this is not a guys-only discussion. Men and women are seeking fulfillment and pleasure and arousal and intimacy in all the wrong places. Girls and guys are having sex. Girls and guys are looking at porn. Girls and guys are masturbating. This is not a secret right now. And if we keep it secretive, then we will never get help. We will never have victory. Sadly, there are so many in this room who are carrying this sin and shame, and you feel like you cannot tell anyone. You're afraid to speak it. You are harboring a past that you are terrified will become exposed. And so you live in secret every single day. Knowing that that attraction, the draw, the desire, the tug of temptation is so real. And you've given in so many times that now you've either embraced sin or become numb to shame. But there's got to be something more. So from Samson and Delilah, we're quickly going to unpack what can we learn from him. 
First, are you seeking Delilah's? Now, I need you to define Delilah as something different than just this random woman 3,000 years ago. But are you seeking out Delilah? Remember, Samson goes and marries a pagan woman. He goes and sleeps with a prostitute, and then he goes to the valley to find him a woman who will fulfill his desire to his right in his own, eye, his own eyes. Are you seeking in the wrong ponds? Are you just swiping right, hoping someone will love you back? Where's your problem in this situation? Do you have an identity problem that you fear that you are so unlovable that you will give yourself to anyone who likes you? Do you have an urges problem, this insatiable desire that you feel like has to be fed multiple times a day? Do you have a past problem, allowing something you have done or something done to you to warp your view of intimacy and love? Do you have a patience problem, unwilling to wait on God to provide and instead seeking out whatever you can find? Are you seeking Delilah's? Because Delilah doesn't satisfy. Delilah seeks to harm you and to kill you. On studies done of pornography, they say it is common for people that are addicted to pornography to not, uh, after a while, to not even show up out of desire, but out of duty. They don't do it out of arousal, but out of maintenance. And it shows that studies show that it will become increasingly vulgar and worse and become almost harmful and illegal Because the hit that you had yesterday doesn't satisfy today. Are you seeking Delilah's, looking for intimacy and love and acceptance in places that will never provide it? Are you seeking pleasure from a person or from a screen or from a night or from a feeling? Have you opened the door to Delilah? Not only does Samson seek her out, but he brings her close into his inner chambers, being vulnerable and open with her. What doors have you opened to Delilah? Are there apps that provide easy access points for you to lust or long for something? Are there shows that create desires and urges, be it emotional or physical, that are setting you on a path for what God does not desire for you? Are there uh, people in your life that you just hope, maybe, I wouldn't hate it if this happened. Are there situations you're signing up for constantly that are setting you up for failure? In the last few years, I've had to delete two or three apps from my phone because apps that started off, they were fine, they were good. I enjoyed them started creating avenues and started pumping into me uh, access to pornography and things I did not need to be seeing or things I did not need to be having around. Are you just opening doors? Who do you need to unfollow? I bet each one of us could name a few people that, if we were honest, this person does nothing but tempt us in some way. Who, what do you need to delete? Are there screenshots, phone numbers, apps, loopholes? What relationship do you need to end? Maybe it hasn't gotten to a terrible place, but you know you're on the road to it. What thing do you need to remove or change? Do you need to change where or who you study with? 
Do you need to change just a simple thing in life? Like, I don't shut the door of my bedroom. Yeah, it's awkward. Yeah, changing's kind of weird. Yeah, I don't really sleep well because I'm always worried I can see something coming through my door to devour me or kill me because that's why Carlin sleeps on the door side now. Um, but, but do you need to sleep with the door open? Because you can't handle it shut. Have you given your heart to Delilah? I read a line this week. It says, the question is not whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is, what will you love as ultimate? You're going to love something the most. And here, I'll illustrate it this way. If you've ever dated someone or if you're dating someone now, you realize you have way more free time than you ever imagined you had. Why? Because you create time to talk on the phone or to text or just ride in a car with or go and watch a movie. Dating, you watch more movies than anybody else in the world because you create time to spend with this person. I said the very first week we met this semester, quit saying you're too busy to read your Bible. You just don't prioritize it. You don't want to. The thing that you love, you're going to create time for, you're going to focus on, you are going to choose over all other things. You're going to give it your time, your energy, your focus. Some of you go, man, I am so busy, and yet your addiction has been fed every single day for the last 30 days. Where, what are you giving your heart to? Have you just accepted, this is who I am, this is my struggle, this is how I handle it? Have you just learned to live with shame? Just invited it in. Paul calls us to flee sexual immorality, yet how often do we allow it to linger? We just sit with us. We're going to be stronger. We promise, God, we will never do this again. I am going to do a few behavior modifications, and it won't, and everything will change. And yet, we allow it to linger. Oh, I can handle having this type of phone. Oh, I can handle this app. Oh, I can handle dating them. Oh, I can handle being in that group. Oh, I can handle going to that party. And yet, we then have the same issues we've always had. Why? Because we think we're strong enough. I had a student who would come to me and he'd say, every time I go and visit my, boy, my girlfriend, uh, we will have sex. It was like four or five years ago. And, and they said, I pray the whole drive to see her. And then he said, but then I'm always going to spend the night at her house. Okay. You've let her in. You've given her your heart. Of course this is going to happen. Finally, what are you risking for Delilah? This terrifies me the most because if this takes root in my life, I could lose everything. I could lose how I make money. I could lose my wife that I love. I could lose the child that I love. I could lose every bit of influence, every bit of future I've ever had. What are you risking for Delilah? I'll tell you a quick story, probably one of the most uh, tempting moments of my life. Carlin and I were visiting a seminary in North Carolina. So this is a holy adventure, right? We are going to see where I'm going to go to school to get a divinity degree so that I can be a pastor. And this seminary was great. They said, yes, we would love to uh, give you a hotel. We'd love to take care of you. We'll give you two hotels because you're engaged at this point. So we go and we spend the night. We meet there. We're spending the night at the hotel. And I begin to realize we are hours from every, anybody we know. 
No one would ever find out. No one would ever know. And thankfully, I am now married to and was dating someone way stronger against temptation than I was because she would not open a door for us no matter how many advances or how much desire I had for it. What are you risking for Delilah? If you don't fight this addiction now, you are risking your future. You are risking everything. If you keep dating Delilah, what are you risking? If you keep giving her a place on your desktop, what are you risking? Well, stats show that you are going to go into a relationship demanding and desiring something you ought not have. Stats show that you're 300%, I think, more likely to get divorced. Stats show that then if you're divorced, you're probably going to lose uh, family relationships, your kids, and all of this. It, this is the risk you're taking by not fighting this battle today. Because dating doesn't make it better. Marriage doesn't make it better. You're most likely, or you're very likely, to spiral into fetishes that are harmful and even illegal. You're risking everything. For what? So what are you seeking to fulfill you? What doors are you opening to sexual sin? Where, or who has your heart and what are you risking? All right, I've got three and a half minutes and I'm going to give us a little bit of hope, okay? I know I went long and I couldn't help it because today we had to. Here's what we do. We've got to figure out how to fight this. First, you need to understand that you are loved by God in spite of your misplaced love. You are loved as an enemy, Romans 5. You are loved when you are far away, Ephesians 2. You are loved when you choose what is right in your own eyes. Just look at the book of Judges. You are loved not because you are lovable, but because God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are loved not because you deserve it, but because God loves you. He meets us running down in our sin and our shame to meet us. He seeks us when we are the lost sheep or the lost coin to come and find us. We are loved not because we deserve it. You are loved as you are. That doesn't mean we abuse grace. That doesn't mean that we just live as we want. No, because grace so changes us that we can't help but live different lives, change lives, live change lives when we understand the change that God has made in us. That was a lot of back to forth. We'll, we'll go on. Don't wait to be clean enough or good enough or holy enough or fixed enough. Second, Sexuality must not be your scorecard for acceptance. I have lived in seasons where daily I graded myself. Check mark for a good day, X for a bad day. That only leads to either pride and arrogance of how good you are at doing something by yourself, or rejection and shame by realizing, oh, I didn't deserve God's love, I didn't earn it this week. You must not grade yourself on one sin. Did I lust? Did I search out pornography? Did I have sex with my girlfriend? Did I masturbate? We are not grading ourselves on one action because here's the rule, guys, or here's the thing. Even if you are perfect in sexual sin for the rest of your life, you still only deserve hell. God doesn't grade us on one thing, and we've got to stop grading ourselves on one thing. We are prideful and arrogant and slanderous enough 
All right, third one, and I think it's the final one. You're not alone, and you can't do this alone. I'm willing to bet somebody on your right or left, somebody in the row in front of you or behind you, has uh, a sexual history they would be terrified for you to find out. I would be willing to bet that somebody on the row with you has fallen sexually this week. You are not alone in this. So take a step of vulnerability and honesty to seek help, to seek accountability, to ask for prayer, to ask for some, uh, somebody to walk alongside you. No one in this room is in a position that they cannot get help. Be it an adult married leader sitting in this room right now, be it a person on our leadership team, or be it a freshman in a destructive relationship, you all have opportunities for help. Do not think that your position or the place you are or your history denies you that. The only way for there to be a change is for heart change to happen, for God to work in your hearts to change you from the inside out. Behavior modification is not going to work. It may last a week or a month, but eventually the desires will overcome the boundaries you can create. You will find loopholes, I guarantee it. So you need to be praying. Praying for God to forgive you from your past sins so shame doesn't stop you. Pray for strength for today's temptation. Pray for a true understanding of love. Pray for acceptance from God to be found. Pray for pleasure to be realized in holiness. And I'll give you a a piece of just practical advice. Fight small battles. Quit promising months, years, or semesters. Quit promising a week. Promise a day or a next hour or even 15 minutes. God, I'm going to be holy. I'm going to choose you. I'm going to fight this temptation for the next 15 minutes. Make your aim progress, not just perfection. Perfection, when you fail once, well, what's the point? Progress says, I'm going to do better this time. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to trust in the Spirit. And remember, it's not on you. God sent Samson after 40 years of oppression by the Philistines. He opened a womb to provide salvation for his people. 2,000 years ago, God opened another womb to provide hope and salvation and the ability to overcome this battle with sexual sin. The battle has been won. The victory is available to you. Will you trust it? Or will you try to save yourself? Let me pray.